Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle podcast. I'm Taha Lokandwala, Deputy Personal Finance Editor, and I'm joined today by Carlos van Hardenberg, founding partner of Mobius Capital Management and co-manager of Mobius Investment Trust and Mobius Emerging Markets Fund. Hi, Carlos. How are you doing? Hi, fine. Thanks for having me. Lovely to have you here. It's an interesting time uh, for you and your company. So Mobius Capital Partners launched last year in May, I believe. Exactly, in May, yes. Yeah. And uh, your trust IPO'd in October. Um, so for listeners who aren't aware, Carlos and Mark Mobius obviously um, also founded Mobius Capital Partners. Mark Mobius and Carlos worked on the Franklin Templeton Emerging Markets team and the Templeton Emerging Markets Investment Trust, TEMIT for short. And you've launched a new strategy now. So this is... Smaller mid-cap emerging markets and frontier markets, I believe? Absolutely correct. The um, strategy is new and it's not new. So it's basically going back to where we started. Tamit used to be a smaller fund. When Tamit was launched, it was $100 million, then went all the way up to over $3 billion. Uh, and we uh, founded um, the Mobius Investment Trust with the aim to go back to our own roots and focusing on the smaller opportunities, smaller companies in emerging and frontier markets, simply because we are convinced that the more attractive businesses, the more attractive entrepreneurs are to be found in that specific segment. There's a slight twist to your trust as well. I and mean, You've combined this with a, a big focus on environmental, social and governance or ESG factors, I believe. Um, can we talk more about that as well? So there are two pillars, correct? Uh, the first pillar is really fundamental stock picking. It's about identifying the right ideas. It's about understanding companies, highly concentrated, highly specialized approach. In terms of um, sector biases, we look at healthcare, we look at education, we look at technology, and we're looking at the new consumer sector and emerging markets. So we're really moving away from the more established, more mature big companies into the smaller ones in those sectors. When it comes to ESG, ESG really is part and parcel of our second pillar, which is engagement and friendly shareholder activism. So we really act like owners of these businesses, co-owners of these businesses. We are taking the governance under the microscope. We are looking at areas that need improvement. We are looking at also areas that could eventually become risk factors for these businesses and minority shareholders, whether it's related party transactions, whether it's transparency around issues that relate to environmental factors, but also, and most importantly, governance. Governance is the key. So we have had tremendous experience in the past 20 years in the effort to improving governance in emerging market companies from small to big companies. And we've seen that it had a very significant impact on the performance of these companies. So as they improve the governance, the market is willing to attach a higher multiple to these businesses. And first and foremost, they're attracting more quality, longer uh, term oriented shareholders. And that's that's a key differentiating factor. So the trust has is a 100 million IPO, I believe, mm-hmm. um, and is about 85% deployed. Correct. Yeah. So you're going to run a concentrated strategy. So I think the top 10 at the moment accounts for about 50% of the 85% uh, deployed. So what's the overall aim? Are you looking at what, about 30 companies? 30 companies is the aim. And again, we try to really go more into quality as opposed to quantity. So we have recruited a what we think world-class team. 
they all came from very reputable, larger and smaller emerging markets uh, specialists um, with different areas of specialization. And now we have a fully functioning research team and uh, we are well underway to be fully invested. Obviously, it was a tough time to launch the trust uh, during the year where pessimism was the name of the game. Nobody wanted to uh, even listen to emerging markets. There was the reversal of the carry trade. There was a lot of political uncertainty. Commodity prices were all over the place. And therefore, the appetite for such a strategy, unfortunately, in these periods is, is not as good as, as it should be. Uh, because in contrast to the appetite, uh, the opportunity normally during these difficult times is really the, the best because, because of the evaluations. So the trust raised 100 uh, million pounds. We think this could easily be as, as much as 500. Our strategy is capped at 1.8 billion at this stage. And as I said, it's, it's really a summary of the very best ideas that we can source in emerging and frontier markets. Just looking at the geographical split at the moment, you've got about 16% in China, 14% in Brazil, um, 13% in South Korea. Is this the shape that it's going to look at when it's fully invested or do you expect to see some changes? I expect to see some changes. First of all, despite all the good news you read in the Financial Times and other magazines about India, there's still a lot of bureaucracy in India. So for us to be able to access India took a little bit longer than other markets. Uh, so India just opened um, in January. We have started building positions in India. India is a market where we are extremely optimistic about the uh, medium and long-term future. And we're finding among these 1,600 mid and small caps in India, a lot of opportunities in different sectors. So India is going to be up there on the list. As you can see from the composition and country breakdown, this is a truly independently constructed portfolio, which has a, a very high active share. In other words, it has very little commonality with the uh, emerging market index or the emerging market mid cap index. Most of these ideas are not in any of the indices. This is what we see as our mission to find ideas that are not included in these indices. And it's going to be far less exposed to China than what you typically see in the large funds. And that is partially because we are steering clear of these very large companies, which uh, often are in China. We are also steering clear um, of Chinese banks, insurance companies, the gigantic tech companies. And we're moving down the market cap spectrum to an average of 2 billion. So therefore, the nature of companies, the risk of these companies is very different. Uh, and we want this to be a globally diversified portfolio. We are seeing a lot of opportunities in Latin America, countries like Brazil, which is currently seeing a lot of also macro-induced optimism that is coming through with lots of reform and privatization, but also other smaller Asian markets which are benefiting from the higher cost of business uh, in China. So Vietnam, Bangladesh, many of these smaller markets are benefiting. I was actually going to come on and ask you as to what you define as uh, small and medium, but so $2 billion is going to be... The average, the average, yeah. So the range is between, so the smallest company we right now have is slightly below 500 million, but it's still fairly liquid. And the largest one is a touch above 10 billion, on average 2 billion. Okay. Also interesting about India as well. Um, I noticed that you have hired Kunal Desai, who used to manage the Neptune India Fund. But obviously I was... And we're very I happy very that he joined us. Yeah. Very yes. surprised to see his name on the on yes. the list, but see no India in the fund. But I suppose that makes sense now. Yes. Okay, great. I want to move on to the... Um, the investment approach. Um, so this is basically buying companies. Well, it's, a, it's a value approach to buying companies. You're, you're trying to buy companies at a lower than intrinsic value. And then I suppose use active management engagement, this friendly shareholder activism, which you called it, um, to create a re-rating. 
So starting with the, the intrinsic value, what, what are the kind of screens you're using? What's the strategy you're using to kind of weed out stocks trading um, at or above intrinsic value? So when we talk about uh, screening, we're looking at various factors. Uh, number one, uh, we are looking, um, and that's very important, we're also looking at macroeconomic risks. So we have a certain preference for countries where we see a more conducive, more constructive operating environment uh, than those which see high, still very, very high inflation, uh, political uncertainty, regulatory risks. So that's the first kind of uh, screen we deploy when it comes to more idiosyncratic or company-related uh, factors. We look at um, th three areas. One is the balance sheet. So we do a deep dive into the sustainability of the capital structure. We are also looking at the historical performance uh, of the balance sheet through um, difficult times and more and better times, how they actually fared uh, and whether they behaved responsibly or not, whether the balance sheet itself or the capital structure was also supportive of a dividend to shareholders, which at the end of the day tells you quite a bit about mindset and governance. Just jumping back there, we are, we are trying to steer clear of, of leverage. Uh, a little bit of debt is okay, but we are trying to simply keep that unit of risk away from out of the portfolio by steering clear of the overly leveraged companies. Number two, we're looking at the P&L development, so profitability. We're looking at margins. We're looking at the profit pools in the respective countries and sectors, whether they're growing or shrinking, whether the company has any competitive edge to support margins, whether they can actually go through a ongoing phase of growth of their profitability going forward or not. So that's very important. And then Lastly, uh, obviously, cash flow. Cash flow is uh, incredibly important. Uh, we are focusing quite a bit on that. Uh, we have a total of more than 25 different factors that we are screening for. We have a proprietary screen embedded in our process. But a lot of it um, is also based on personal relationships and experiences. So we, I lived in Turkey for more than 10 years, in Poland for many years. All the partners have a original emerging, almost all of them, original emerging market background. Obviously, Mark has dedicated his entire life to emerging markets. We have a very, very robust network of uh, people, entrepreneurs, business people, policymakers, and we are using this network and our experience to source for ideas as well. Okay. The other thing that I, I noticed from, from your documents is you talk about this um scope for engagement so you're looking for quality businesses and using the screens that you just described and then you're looking you know you have to be able to create the re-rating that we talked about earlier how do you define that scope for engagement so first of all you know a lot of people ask that question what are the different uh, situations looking like what kind of engagement uh do you do you do you find there what what's necessary how far can you go what instruments do you engage First of all, it must be said that almost every company in emerging or frontier markets has a profile that needs either dramatic improvement or certain refinement in certain areas when it comes to governance. And none, none of these companies uh, really are perfect. Uh, and also the environment is changing. So there's constant increasing need to um, adapt and to uh, respond to changes with regards to expectations of the capital market. We have had a lot of experience in appointing independent board members as a team. We have appointed more than 80 independent board members in different emerging markets. We have served on boards ourselves uh, from companies like Luke Oil to Petrom uh, to many other uh, companies in, in Brazil and Turkey. 
And we see that we have a, a lot of skill that we developed over the years to identify areas in these companies which need improvement and we can kind of set clear priorities in terms of how they should be improved and help and assist these companies in improving uh, their, their, their governance. So uh, they relate to more hard factors uh, like the appointment of a, uh, of a more independent board member to situations where there is there are questions around related party transactions a lot in India and Turkey and Indonesia all the way to much easier areas where simply we see that the company is listed in the wrong place or the company has two share classes which is not a great practice or a company that doesn't provide enough clarity about uh, for example payout ratios so all the way down to the easiest one if the company doesn't have a proper investor relations department it's a quite a mixed bag of instruments we deploy, but there's very significant statistical evidence in almost all of these markets that improving governance, and if you start measuring, monitoring that improvement, has a very significant impact on your performance. Uh, so that's exactly what we're looking after. You've explained the two pillars quite well. So how much attention are you paying to the, the macro environment? I, I say I appreciate the macro environment will factor into the outlook for the companies, but... Like how, you know, we, we talked about India and Indonesia, and these are countries where the domestic companies can do really, really well out of the economic growth. Is that something that is factored into your decision as well? In a way, everything starts with a detailed macro analysis, simply because it would be somewhat of a waste of time if you dedicate a lot of resources, time, effort uh, in analyzing a company in a place where you then later find out that the macro situation is just too bad and no matter how good you are in identifying uh, an opportunity, it, it could potentially wipe out all the all the upside uh, by way of a currency depreciation or capital controls or you know, regulatory risks, etc. So everything really begins with macro. Macro is a um, very substantial part of our analysis, a very important um factor in our allocation decision in our research orientation so it's it's very important i can't stress this enough especially in frontier markets where macro conditions are also more volatile i mean i give you an example i lived in as i said in turkey for more than a decade there i've seen what it means if a country starts implementing very clearly articulated clearly defined imf rules goes down the privatization track, is trying to uh, go down a path of stability when it comes to politics and also starts privatizing very aggressively. That has a positive impact on currency. It has a positive impact on the operating environment, on uh, consumer demand, on inflation, obviously. And then we've also seen in the last decade what happens if they divert from this path. And um, I very vividly remember one of the last IPOs that I experienced there uh, about three years ago. Uh, it was um, in the in the consumer space. It was a IPO promoted by the large investment banks. Uh, and they thought, uh, you know, they were selling this as a fantastic opportunity, great business, good family, all the rest of it, good valuations. Those people who bought this have lost 80% of their investment simply because the currency depreciated so dramatically. So you need to look at these factors. It's kind of refreshing to hear that because, you know, I, I do a lot of fund manager interviews where you ask them about the macro situation of the, the area they invest in and they just adamant. It's like, no, we don't, I don't pay attention to the macro. I'm looking at the fundamentals. Big mistake. Very good companies and I just think I, I don't understand that as a concept. So it's, I'm genuinely very refreshed to hear that. The other thing I wanted to pick up on, you talked about 
the kind of valuation screening that you did and how far you went back and looked at the history of the balance sheet and stuff like that. Interesting in terms of small and mid-cap, obviously. So how mature are the companies you're buying and how much information do you have? Like how long have these companies been around? If they're just small and mid, doesn't necessarily mean new, I'm guessing, if that's the case. Not really. It depends. In the technology area, many of them are not that old uh, between, you know, they could be less than 10 years. Even in the consumer sector, some of them uh, are newer, maybe a decade old or so. Some of them are actually uh, younger than that. I would say half of the companies that we invested in are companies that we have known from our previous uh, roles and jobs. We also ran one of the largest um, emerging market small cap fund and the Frontier Fund. So we have come across these names. And um, the other half are new companies. So it it really required a lot of primary deep research uh, and it took quite a long time. That's also why we didn't invest immediately. It just took time to ramp up research knowledge and we traveled intensely over the last um, months uh, to visit these companies. Uh, so it, it's 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 a good mix between new ideas and old ideas. That leads uh, nicely into my next question, which was um, kind of ESG investing, putting pressure on management to, to change and improve, you know, finding the right ESG screen stocks and things like that. This all takes a lot of time and resource and energy. Mobius Capital Partners, you know, you're running on quite a small team, I suppose, comparatively to what you'd expect to the other big fund houses that run similar strategies. So how do you how do you plan on doing all of this work with Yes. Just a few heads. Well, first of all, uh, let me jump ahead and say I think we are probably one of the largest teams in the sense that I have learned personally what it means to work in a very large organization where, yes, the team looks very large, but you run, uh, you know, 70, 80, 90 funds, single country funds, geographic funds, thematic funds, global funds, you know, funds left, right and center. So there's a lot of embedded um, distraction potentially even conflict of interest. Uh, we This is why we left. We wanted this team to focus on one strategy and we wanted to make sure that every team member has a significant amount invested in that strategy. So now we have $40 million invested of our own savings into that fund and it results in a very, very healthy alignment of interests and it, it results in a total focus on this one strategy. So if you look at it, you know, with Kunal, uh, with Fergus, with Marcin, Mark, Greg, myself, Usman, plus currently we also have uh, two Chinese uh, who are not out of the probation yet, but they're also helping intensely. We have a good uh, um, and fairly deep resourceful team to look at these ideas. The other factor is we don't invest in 100 companies like the typical gem funds. We invest in 25 to 30 companies. So there's a big difference. And we, as I said, uh, we prefer quality over volume of ideas. So ESG is, I think it would be wrong to say that we are ESG, I like this term, evangelists. Uh, none of us uh, has that background. I'm not an environmentalist. Although I'm increasingly becoming one, I have four children, so I care more and more about these aspects. I don't have neither the academic nor the professional experience uh, of impact investing and all the rest of it. So we took a kind of a Chinese approach, a very pragmatic approach. We looked at the pool of uh, assets that is uh, now looking at ESG-compliant companies, which is more than $20 trillion. Quite a bit of this is moving into emerging markets, so that means – just putting one and one together, these companies um, 
uh, need to look at the f this factor because the market is increasingly becoming sensitive towards these factors. So we are working with uh, Morgan Stanley, uh, MSCI. Uh, we have a um, uh, we have a partnership with them. They are providing uh, a lot of data to us, what is considered best in class in ESG around the world. And we are using this as a blueprint when we talk to and work with companies to ensure that they know the direction of travel. Where, what do they have to comply with? Uh, what is best in class? We can measure it. We can monitor it. We can help them report it. And thereby, we really look at this as a risk management tool. But we also see this, uh, especially since we work with predominantly companies that don't have an ESG rating, that they are well prepared to fetch a better rating once the agencies go down to the size of these companies. Okay. Sticking with the ESG just for a couple more minutes, in your literature, you, you say that, you know, better governance, um, better transparency on environmental impact, um, better social policies, employee relations, uh, kind of, you know, payout ratios. You mentioned that earlier as well. All of this leads to better market share, better selling practices, better operating costs, better productivity. And all of this, obviously, in the end, fetches a premium to intrinsic value. And that's what you're looking for, buying a discount, selling at a premium. Um, but I suppose my, my question is, I can see how that works really well in developed markets where things are a bit more efficient. But I suppose the issue with emerging and frontier markets is they're not always efficient, especially not in the short term and even the medium term. And they don't always attach the right valuation to the right stocks and you are susceptible to sentiment and swings and macroeconomics. So how do you how do you kind of plan on managing that within your strategy? I couldn't agree uh, more with you. I think it's a, it's a very lo it's a long shot. Uh, and the markets are um, not as efficient uh, in pricing in these factors as they are in developed markets. So there's lots of evidence supporting that for sure, especially in frontier markets. Nevertheless, the reason why we do have this as a component of our investment process is because we really – and actually it's funny you bring this up because uh, Mark Mobius doesn't even – really use the term ESG, he always says, look, guys, let's let's talk business. This is risk management. And that's exactly what it is. It provides us with a framework that gives us a deep insight into these very granular factors which fall into ESG. Actually, if you look at the rating agencies, they look at as much as 180, 200 sub-factors. So it forces us into a certain discipline to go through these factors with the companies in order to get us kind of a 360-degree picture of the potential risk profile of this business. And that gives us an insight we need. It gives us an information edge. Uh, and it will, um, as time will tell, give us an advantage in selling and buying into the right risks that we actually want to sell and buy. Okay. Um, great. No, thank you. I think it's best to example this with um a couple of stocks so let's uh, look at your your top two so we have uh Hugel, Hugel. yes yeah difficult to pronounce um i'm not sure which way you say it but this is a south korean biopharma stock um I was, I was reading again reading about it in your in your documents it seems like a very interesting company but um what's the what's the business case here then the business case in this case uh is pretty straightforward so this is a company that has showcased um the ability to develop uh, Botox, which is, well, most of the applications are quite well known to the consumer. So they have cosmetic applications, but they also, Botox is a substance which is increasingly used in uh, for medical purposes, for uh, especially in the neurological area and for pain management, for lots of uh, diseases. And especially in the, in the uh, pain management, it plays an increasingly important role. It's being discovered for more and more applications. This company has had 
an excellent operation to develop this. It's a very competitive, very difficult space to manage in. Uh, they have uh, grown market share rapidly in, in uh, their domestic market. Uh, they have then started to exploring the export market, which is, of course, dominated by, by U.S. companies. Um, they then were quite successful early on in uh, conquering the Chinese market, which is the biggest in the world, potentially the biggest in the world. In the world. The, there were... The, the qualities of this company, the management, the execution, uh, discipline, people, was discovered by Bain Capital, the large uh, private equity fund. They took a 41% stake in this business um, not too long ago. After they took the stake, uh, they started implementing better governance, uh, worked on transparency, and of course, assured the market that they would, with their global uh, knowledge and resources, would help uh, for this business to to get more international. When we came in, and one of the reasons why we are so attracted at that time was the share price uh, corrected very sharply uh, last year on the back of the Chinese banning imports of Botox into the Chinese market. And that was because they wanted to control illegal imports and wanted to uh, make sure that there's an orderly process uh, in, uh, involved and also the regulatory framework needed to be de developed. Market overreacted. Market thought they will no longer be able to import to China, which was the wrong conclusion, which is now already out of the way. The market is opening up again. Exports are coming back. The illegal imports have been controlled and the share price is already recovering. So we're seeing great people, great execution, great entrepreneurs, strong anchor shareholder, private equity, improving governance and a huge upside potential operationally. So Sorry, I can go on forever on this. But I'm sure, sure you can. Um, the two things I was going to come to is one was the how do you justify it in terms of the two pillars in terms of valuation and, and engagement. So valuation yeah. you've, you've covered. So where's the engagement potential? It sounds like Bain have uh, done done the hard work here. Not yet. Uh, so they are, you know, they haven't been shareholder for that long. There are two areas here. One relate to uh, the uh, uh, capital allocation discipline uh, and communication around this uh, is one area. The other one it relates very much to transparency, communication with shareholders, communication with the market. Uh, Bain is, I'm sure, fantastic and far better than uh, than us in terms of uh, really managing the business internally. But what they so far haven't done enough of is looking after minority shareholders and what they what they need in terms of you know uh, timely translated documents and further clarity regarding the direction of travel for the business going forward. And that's where where we are working on. Okay, great, thank you. Uh, and the next one is uh, Matahari Department Store, which is Indonesian consumer goods, I believe. Yes, you're yes. picking on some uh, really interesting ideas here. <laughs> um, <laughs> So yeah, you talk about this one having good distribution, brand advantage. Obviously, you, you know we can talk for days about the macroeconomic uh, potential in Indonesia uh, and the, the growing middle class there as well. So this one traded below value as well. It is the most profitable department store operator globally, and it is a company which gives a unique exposure to the growing middle income class in in Indonesia with over 150 department stores, uh, very well managed. It used to be controlled by a private equity fund, a big Western private equity fund, which reduced their holdings over the years. Management um, is still from that time, Western-oriented uh, management group, very professional. Uh, they they have really done a lot in terms of modernizing the business, in terms of also looking at 
new routes uh, to the consumer, looking at omni-channel, looking, looking at online opportunity per se. It's a branded business, high margins, very solid balance sheet. They have been buying back shares aggressively. They have a very high yield, which they have been supporting. And we have very good access to the management. To be perfectly open about this, there is an issue regarding one of the uh, families in Indonesia which has a stake in the business. This family did have uh, reputational issues in the past, which the market is very, very sensitive to. They, however, have reduced their ownership in this business down to 15%. We are seeing that the management is truly independent. They need a lot of assistance in how to deal with the capital market. We have been um, in very advanced discussions with them on improving this. Uh, again, it's mainly about transparency. It's also about ensuring that there is clarity about payout ratio, that there's clarity about expansion plan and uh, clarity about how they're managing costs. But we get that very good access to the business. Why I find these two companies quite interesting is because they have this kind of quality economic moat um, attribute, I suppose, you know, with either IP or distribution and brand, uh, we, we know, which you, you can't lose overnight. So why did Matahari trade below valuation? What was the, why is it below intrinsic value? They had uh, certain issues. So first of all, well, it's Indonesia, it's emerging markets, it's bricks and mortar as opposed to, you know, the sexy online businesses. What the market here is certainly not seeing is the phenomenal advantage they have in the infrastructure piece because they are they are all over Indonesia and they have a logistical infrastructure which other businesses will actually need if they want to develop. The market has become uh, skeptical about the longer term growth opportunity here. Actually, growth has come down from a annualized level of 15 to 20 percent to now uh, around five, six percent. Uh, so that that is one area uh, which led to a derating. But also the fact that there is this governance issue. Uh, to give you an example, that when we bought the shares, they were immediately up by fifty percent, um, which we didn't like because that is a volatility which is not necessarily healthy. They recently made an announcement that they would cut the payout from 70% to 50% and uh, we were back to square one. Share price reacted very strongly. We are now working with them in a very productive fashion to ensure there's more clarity, more regularity in their, uh, in their communication. Uh, and also there was skepticism about whether this particular family, the Lippo Group, would use um, Matahari for some of their own funding purposes, which, of course, is the deadliest sin in emerging. We know all about this. We've seen it in all of these markets. It shouldn't happen. Um, we see that there is um, there's, there, there are many reasons why you can be confident that the management is looking after minority shareholder interests. Okay. Um, I suppose this, it kind of goes back to my earlier question as well. So if you're finding these companies inexplicably trading low like low valuations um like how how confident or does that undermine your confidence in your engagement really convincing the market to get its trader premium or even intrinsic value it will take a while this is not an exercise that you um you know where you where you quickly fix a factor and then the market will immediately price this and this is this is this is hard work it also involves oftentimes other shareholders it involves dissemination of these improvement factors to the market. They have to see that it's not a one-off, but an ongoing affair. Um, but you know what? Ultimately, 
what's most important is the fundamental stock pick. You have to make the right investment and you have to make sure you don't overpay for the asset. So you have to, uh, there has to be a, a good fundamental upside simply from the operations. The additional return which we intend to generate from the engagement is on top of the upside we're seeing fundamentally. I just want to close off talking about emerging markets and frontier markets in general. I think, you know, we've we've talked on all of the Investors Conical podcasts about how tough 2018 was for emerging markets and frontier markets. Incredibly difficult for you at the time you launched your trust as well, which I'm sure uh, was an interesting time. So what, what do you think about 2019 in general? So emerging markets of about 10% year to date, frontier markets 8%, these are using the MSCI indices. Uh, so what are your thoughts, especially given what we're, we're seeing come out from US monetary policy? I believe it will remain difficult uh, in emerging and frontier markets. Uh, we are in 2019, we see again a year which is dominated by elections um, in various larger and smaller emerging and frontier markets. And there is especially in those markets where we have elections like in India, although it's probably less of an important election than in other periods. Uh, but still, there's a lot of volatility around that. Argentina is the big one towards the back end of the year where you could see uh, a catastrophic uh, outcome market-wise. I wouldn't now attach a probability, but it is it is open. You have a couple of elections in, in Asia and the subcontinent uh, in addition to India. So that is always a source of uncertainty. So I think that will especially impact domestic investors. Mm -hmm. I think if you look at the global flows and global funds, there's still the massive reversal of the carry trade, with, which has un unraveled over the years, is still fairly, fairly stubborn. So there's not much flow coming back into emerging markets simply because of concerns regarding U.S. policy, trade policy regarding emerging markets, China, the reaction. I don't think that's going to go away very quickly and that will put a damper on potential performance of these markets. So you really have to be very selective. I think that certain sectors will, will do better, uh, certain areas, um, especially those I mentioned earlier, we think that they, they will create a lot of upside uh, simply from rapidly improving earnings profiles of these companies. And the, the market is willing to pay a higher price if earnings really show significant improvement. In those selective stocks, we think we could still generate decent performance. But my own expectations for the next 12 months are not overly optimistic. Okay, great. I think that's an excellent note to end on. Carlos, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. And that's all we have time for on uh, today's podcast. Today, we interviewed Carlos van Hardenberg of the Mobius Investment Trust. For more on emerging markets and ESG investing, please head to the website, investorschronicle.co.uk or the magazine. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.